This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 618. What we realized was that the demand seemed to actually be accelerated by the current environment. And so as you can imagine, our value proposition meant even more to consumers today because you can you know, buy a vehicle from home, you can have it delivered, it's a, it's a touchless delivery. Uh, and so it's a much safer environment uh, than going out to a dealership, which may or may not be open. And so when we realized that, we said, boy, this might be an opportune time to, to jump into the, the public fundraising world. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Not unlike many finance leaders of his generation, the finance career of CFO Dave Jones of online car seller Vroom has been shaped and influenced by economic crises of the past two decades. Last month, as the initial shock of the coronavirus waned and the stock market rallied back, Vroom moved quickly to go public. We're pleased to speak to Dave about that milestone as well as others on today's episode. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Dave Jones, CFO of Vroom. Dave, welcome. Great, thanks, Jack. Nice to be here. Great, great to have you with us, Dave. We begin by simply asking you to look back for us and sharing with us some of those experiences you had that you feel prepared you to become a CFO, to be a finance leader. Yeah. What would those have been? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, public accounting and um, I, I grew up in that arena. Uh, the first 11 years of my career were at Arthur Anderson, which I really enjoyed. Um, but, I, but I genuinely think that that has been the foundation for my career. You know, it was uh, hard work, um, you know, taught me flexibility, 
um, you know, working in a team, building a team, um, you know, working with different personalities and clients. And I, I've, I've been a, a, a proponent of recommending that to young accountants um, since my time there. I, I don't think you can get a better start in the accounting world. You were on the audit side of the house. Is that right? Correct. In 2002, it sounds like you were there to the final chapter. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was there when we ran out of uh, photocopy paper. I'm talking about clearly uh, the collapse of Anderson and in the wake of the Enron uh, scandal. And it's a chapter that I've talked to, to other CFOs about, but any any takeaways for you when you, when you think back? Obviously, there were some uh, some of the senior partners there really lost a good deal. But for yourself, uh, you had built your career there for some time, actually, quite an investment. What, what, what did you make of it at the time? Yeah, I did. I, and, and I loved it. And, and I thought that I would do that for the balance of my career. Um, and so one of the lessons learned was never say never, right? So I think the view uh, at the beginning of the crisis at, at Anderson was, wow, this, this is the best firm on the planet. There's no way it's ever going to um, get taken down by, by uh, the current issues. And it did. And so I think that was important for my career as well, because it, it taught me in business, you really have to take things seriously. And sometimes, you know, things that seem innocuous can actually be very dangerous. And so, you know, I, I've learned to be a bit more pessimistic, I guess, you know, when faced with adversity in the business world to just take it seriously and, and really think about everything that, that we do. One of the interesting things about your career, Dave, I think, is that you had this uh, quite, quite an investment clearly at Anderson, and then you go to the Penske Automotive Group, where, of course, you rise through the ranks, I, I would imagine, um, and enter the CFO office eventually. But you were there uh, another uh, t over 10 years. Yeah. So just you didn't move around a lot that initial 20 years of your career. You were in two places. Share with us entering Penske and, and what, uh, you know, when you first arrived, what was the story? Uh, yeah, so it's um, it's a, it's a kind of a cool story. I um, When I was at Anderson, I got pretty good exposure to the retail automotive world. Uh, and I had uh, quite a few clients in that space. I was very involved in the industry. And I really enjoyed it. I'm a, I'm a car guy, so it was it just felt good to be in a very tangible industry like that. Um, so when I was looking for the next step, uh, I decided that, that that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to stay in that industry. And so the best in the business was Penske. Um, lucky for me, they were based in the, in the same state that I lived, which was New Jersey um, at the time. And so I reached out to them and uh, I, I knew the guys there a little bit just from working in the industry. And um, it, it was literally in the interview process where, you know, I really learned some valuable life lessons uh, at, at the beginning of very, very beginning of my career there in that, you know, Mr. Penske uh, wanted to make sure I, I was coming in as a director of financial reporting and <clears throat> Mr. Penske you know, thought that was an important role and wanted to talk to me himself. And uh, I, I was just impressed that, you know, the CEO of such a big organization had such attention to detail uh, to want to talk to someone like me. And, you know, I knew I was in the right place at that point. And, you know, from there, I, what, I, what I learned was that, you know, the, the company had an incredible set of values um, really driven from the top. 
And I just continued to, to learn those lessons around, you know, being a straight shooter, being honest, being, you know, forthcoming with people. And, and that was the culture there and the reputation that uh, the company and, and the individuals earned. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a great, great part of my career. How did the company grow during the span of time you, you invested there? Yeah, it was, it was pretty tremendous growth. I think, uh, I think it was a, a two or $3 billion business when I got there. And, you know, I, it was almost an $18 billion business when I left. So a uh, tremendous period of growth, uh, generally through uh, acquisition, but certainly organic as well. Um, you know, very important in the automotive business. And I think to, to Mr. Penske as well as organic growth. Uh, and yeah, it, it, really exciting times, especially the, I think the M&A. We did some interesting uh, acquisitions while I was there. Where, when did you step in roughly to the uh, CFO role there? Um, it was about uh, eight years in, and then I was CFO for the next four. Um, one of the interim steps uh, was CFO of the European business. So I got to spend uh, about a year uh, overseas based in England, uh, being responsible for, for the Penske Automotive Group European operations, which was fantastic. You know, the, the, the relationships built and knowledge learned, you know, being on the ground was invaluable. When I uh, look back on your career, I, I said, well, it makes perfect sense that uh, you're at Vroom today, an automotive-related uh, field. But then there was Iconics brand in between. And again, you invested five years there as CFO. Uh, can you tell us about that? And does that chapter fit with the rest? I'm sure it does, but I'm wondering what... Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I, I would have loved to have, have stayed at Penske forever. Um, I, I was ultimately as CFO uh, based in, in Michigan uh, in the corporate office. And so wanting to come back to New York, uh, I found the Iconics opportunity. Um, and that one was, was a brilliant business model. Uh, it was a licensing business. And I, I was really, you know, captivated with the business model. And, and it was very, very successful. I think, you know, timing was was critical there uh, during, you know, my my tenure there. The world really changed. The retail environment changed quite a bit as it related to licensing. And um, some of the company's big customers, you know, major retailers like Walmart, and Kmart and Sears, uh, either a went through, you know, their own um, uh, their own difficult times or B, their models changed whereby they didn't necessarily want to license brands anymore. They wanted to create their own. Um, and so that, that put uh, obviously some downward pressure on the Iconics business um, and then ultimately led to, you know, a series of, of kind of strategic moves around uh, just keeping the business going. And so happy to say it's still there today. And, uh, and I think uh, under a, a a good management team now, but yeah, a lot of lessons learned there in terms of, you know, one managing a balance sheet, uh, you know, tons of refinancing work, uh, transaction type work. So I think ultimately difficult experience, um, but, but good for my career. So it was only last month that Vroom achieved uh, a milestone. It, it had its IPO and uh, we want to talk to you about that. 
Can you first just, uh, we always like to just ask for, uh, tell us about this business Vroom. What does it do exactly? And what's the value prop here? Yeah. So Vroom is a, um, uh, we're in the used automotive space and we're um, an innovative, you know, end to end e-commerce platform. And we feel like we're really transforming the used vehicle industry by offering consumers a better way to buy and a better way to sell used vehicles. Uh, and we're really committed to providing, um, you know, a, a unique, exceptional experience for customers. So, you know, at, at the heart of it, it's uh, we're a true e-commerce business, very asset light. Um, consumers uh, can go on our website, go on our app, um, and literally in minutes, um, search for a car, find a car that they like, and and transact. Um, and then, you know, that vehicle is delivered to wherever the customer happens to be, wherever they want it delivered. Um, it's a risk-free transaction in that there's a, a seven-day test drive or seven-day return policy. Um, and so we, you know, that's how we get around the, you know, concerns around uh, test driving and physically seeing a vehicle. Um, and obviously, you know, we use technology to enhance the process. We've got... Um, you know, tons of high quality pictures of each of the vehicles, history report, uh, you know, everything you could want um, with, with very, very trans, transparent process in terms of pricing. Um, and then all of the normal products that would go along with uh, buying a vehicle, such as, you know, helping to arrange financing, selling warranties, things like that. Um, and then Again, on the, on the other side of it, where we have customers that want to sell us a vehicle, whether it's directly or through a trade-in, uh, just as seamless and friction-free, it can all be done on the app. Um, you know, we come to the house with one of our trucks, pick up the vehicle, and you get paid right away. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great customer experience. Now, uh, I would make the assumption, and I could be wrong, that you are the uh, perhaps uh, the first CFO to step into this role. And two years ago, you were brought in to get the house in shape and uh, put in the processes that would be required to have this company go public. How am I doing? Am I wrong? Was there someone else before you? Uh, tell us about that first chapter that uh, you joined. Yeah, no, <clears throat> you're right on. Um, I, I wasn't the first CFO. There was a couple of, um, you know, legacy CFOs that, that transitioned with the maturity of the business. Um, I think, you know, our CEO, Paul Hennessy, uh, had done a terrific job over the, you know, 12 months before I got there uh, of really building uh, a fantastic management team that wasn't necessarily um, – a startup team, but it was more focused on uh, a public company team that could run a 20 or $30 billion business, which, you know, ultimately we, we think we can get to those kind of levels. Um, and so that was one of the things that attracted me. I was, you know, probably the, the third uh, last person in out of 10 of us. So, um, I, you know, I had the benefit of being able to, to talk to uh, the, you know, five others on the team. Uh, and, you know, I knew that they worked well together. I knew Paul was building a good team. Uh, and obviously, I, I, I really love the space. And um, it was just a tremendous opportunity. But yeah, I think my, my background is, you know, having been with public companies and, you know, plenty of experience with, uh, 
transactions of this nature was right in, in the wheelhouse for me. All right. So when you arrived, can you just give us a sense of, you know, was it a question of what got us here won't get us where we want to go? And here's what needs to change um, in terms of what were your initial priorities? What did you have to you know, do to get the team to do what you wanted them to do. Yeah, I, l luckily I inherited a good team, um, and you know we've we've added to that team uh, over time versus changing it. So I, I and, and you know incoming CEOs CFOs don't always get that luxury. So I got I was lucky there. Um, but yeah, it was it was building a team for the future, um, and then tactical things like getting four years of audits done, um, which was no, no small feat. Uh, so kudos to my team there, but you know, you, it, it's always about the team. You got to have the right people and, uh, and, and structure to get things done. So, you know, within, um, within the, the year we had gotten through four audits, um, and gotten, uh, you know, gotten the, the beginnings of the IPO set up. So um, we, we've still got a bunch of work to do, I think, around, you know, internal controls and process. And, you know, there's there's always um, a road ahead of you. But, yeah, tremendous amount of success so far. Was there any way, any, any particular uh, metric or number that you thought was being misunderstood or, or not closely paid? attention to given the dessert, you know, the attention it needed. Um, was there any, any, uh, metric or number that you tried to raise the profile of within the, within the company to help people better understand what, what they need to focus on? Yeah, I think we, we've been, we have become incredibly focused on, um, unit economics. So, you know, the way, and, and we really think about that as our path to profitability is through unit economics. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, when we acquire vehicles, there's a couple of different factors that go into the profitability ultimately of, uh, of selling the vehicle <clears throat> just in the um, acquiring process. Uh, we recondition the vehicles. So there's unit economics associated with that. Uh, in terms of, you know, level of effort uh, that goes into reconditioning a particular vehicle versus uh, defect disclosure to customers, you know, through the technology and the e-commerce platform. Um, you know, the, I, I mentioned earlier the value-added products that, that we sell on behalf of third parties in, in the form of vehicle financing, warranty products, you know, other protection type products. Uh, and then finally, logistics, you know, that's a, a big part of the economics of getting a vehicle from point of purchase through reconditioning and ultimately into a customer's driveway. So those are the components of our unit economics. And, um, we, you know, that, that's really what we've identified as the path to profitability. That's the, the biggest levers in our business um, that'll get us there. Um, and I think we've become incredibly disciplined on that uh, over the last, you know, 12, 18 months. Okay. I just want to see if we can touch on the IPO last month and clearly COVID, how it uh, no doubt uh, led you to put the um, break on maybe in March uh, and, and uh, start a discussion with the management team as to what uh, might lie ahead and what might not lie ahead in 2020. Um, and then suddenly, 
or, or maybe not so sudden. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was clear that there was an opportunity here to go public after all. Mm -hmm. um, am I describing something that wasn't part of what uh, was experienced here or how would you characterize it? Yeah, no, I think you, I think you've got it, Jack. Um, we had, as you can imagine, already filed a, um, uh, you know, a confidential registration statement with the SEC and had anticipated going public at some point in 2020, probably in, you know, the summer or maybe even the fall. Um, and, you know, we were well capitalized and had ha had good uh, legacy investors. So um, we, we weren't in any particular rush. Um, <clears throat> when, you know, we saw very quickly in the middle of March, uh, the demand dropping both in, in our business and in the industry. Um, and we literally measured demand every day uh, by VIN in our inventory. So um, we, we saw it very quickly. We, uh, I think, reacted very quickly to say, you know what, we've got um, you know, well over $200 million of inventory uh, we think the market could be adversely affected in terms of pricing, uh, given the pandemic. So let's reduce that exposure as much as we can. Um, and so we stopped acquiring vehicles except for trade-ins. Uh, we focused on reducing that exposure. We went from, you know, 8,000 vehicles in inventory in the middle of March uh, down to less than 2,000 towards the end of April. Um, and so... And, and, and we were able to sell all that inventory profitably. Those unit economics still held up, um, albeit, a, you know, we, we discounted some vehicles to, to get them to turn. Um, so we felt really good about that. We think that was a good strategic decision um, with hindsight. And then uh, it was about April 20th, we started to see um, data that suggested to us that the market was stabilizing. Uh, the demand was starting to return and, and you know, pricing had um, seemed to reach a floor. And, you know, I think we saw that very quickly as well. We're, we're really driven by data at Vroom. Um, we've got 40 data scientists on, on the team um, and, and a massive uh, investment in technology and data science. And so we're, we're ingesting <clears throat> millions of pieces of data every day from the industry and from our own demand signals and um, our own inventory. Um, and so we, we saw that as a, an inflection point. And so we turned acquisitions back on and started ramping up the inventory again uh, at significantly different prices than we had seen in March. So, you know, it, it kind of proved to us that we made the right decision. So as we were going through that, what we realized was the, the demand um, seemed to actually be accelerated by the current environment. And so, as you can imagine, our value proposition uh, meant even more to consumers today because you can you know, buy a vehicle from home, you can have it delivered, it's a, it's a touchless delivery. Uh, and so it's a much safer environment uh, than going out to a dealership, which may or may not be open, um, or even going into the peer-to-peer -peer market, right? And so when we realized that, we said, boy, this might be an opportune time to, to jump into the, the public fundraising um, world. 
And so we consulted with our board and with our investors and decided that, yeah, it did make sense. Uh, and I think it was, you know, obviously very well received. So uh, I think, again, we, you know, we, it was a prudent decision. As you look forward, do you scenario planning or what are you deploying to try to understand what's happening uh, in the next six months and year? Yeah, it's um, it, it, again, it, it goes back to data and data analytics. So, you know, we're measuring demand in our own inventory. So you know, with thousands of vehicles in inventory uh, and we sell nationally, we buy nationally, we market nationally. So we're, you know, we've we've got data uh, nationally. We're, we're really proceeding based on data and based on demand that we see in the data. Um, interestingly, we've seen a reduction in the average selling price, um, you know, pre and post COVID. So there's, there's more demand today for lower price vehicles than there was uh, in the past. And, and we think as we scale the business, that, that trend continues. We know there's a bigger market um, for $20,000 average selling price vehicles than there is for 30. Um, and so we're, we'll, we're going in that direction anyway. Um, but that's just kind of an interesting, you know, data point that we've gotten out of the current environment. Well, we're going to jump to what we refer to uh, as our signature question, which uh, we're going to ask you for a finance strategic moment, although you just shared quite a few around the IPO last week. Um, we'd be interested uh, any time during the course of your career when your lines of sight allowed you to see an opportunity or maybe a risk. Anything come to mind? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, I hate to use the same example again. I think the, the first one that comes to mind is just the most recent experience um, where, you know, we, we, we made a very material decision uh, to, to reduce our exposure to, to inventory in the face of the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, that, that had a lot of weight because we knew that at some point we would be coming on the other side of that and having to, to you know, rebuild that inventory. Um, <clears throat> so that's the first one that comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind, Jack, is, is uh, you know, our, our CEO, Paul Hennessy, has, has been quoted as saying, he views accounting and finance and, and FP&A as a strategic weapon uh, more than just a historical, you know, fact uh, gathering organization. And he mentioned that to me, I think, when I interviewed with him and, and it struck me as like, wow, that's really powerful. And so I think I'm uh, lucky that, I, you know, I'm in an organization that views the role that way. And so every day when I wake up, I think I've got the opportunity, um, you know, to, to help inform those strategic decisions. And that's really, you know, that's really powerful. I, it's a, I think it's, it's great um, for my role. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it really engages me with the company and the vision of the business. When we come back, CFO Dave Jones enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. 
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Dave, welcome to the mentoring round. We're going to ask you to once more look back for us. I want to jump back to Penske with you. When, If you can think back to that first week, that thir- first quarter where you took on the CFO role, if you would go back in time and tell yourself something, a piece of advice, just as you took on all that responsibility for the first time, you thought you had it cold maybe, you had a mentor maybe, I'm not sure what the situation was, but you step into that role and there was something you wish you had known. Anything come to mind? Um, you know, I, I think the thing that comes to mind is, uh, I, I wish I could, um, I wish I could leverage a little bit better. I, I think it's really important in leadership roles to be able to leverage the people that you work with um, and ensure that you're giving them as much opportunity as possible. Um, and, and it's helpful. And I, I see it quite a bit today. And, you know, if I look back, I think I, I could have uh, done more of it w- w- in the in the Penske organization was, you know, give, give responsibility more as much responsibility as possible to people that you work with. Um, and then use that time to do something strategic. Uh, and But it's still something that I, it's difficult, I think, for certain personality types to do that. Um, and, and it's a bit of a limitation. Uh, so it's, it's something that I try and wrestle with all the time. Um, but I, I, I would say, that, you know, it's good advice for anybody. I think in the chair is, yeah, le- leverage the rest of your org as much as you possibly can. Now, I, I find it interesting. I didn't realize there was a Mr. Penske, and I don't know how many of us are familiar with the with the company. It's publicly traded, of course, today. Was it was it public at that place and time, or had it yeah. always been? Or, yeah. yeah, I came into it as a public company. It, it actually had started off as a company called United Auto Group, uh, and then the Penske organization bought it and and um, you know owns a majority of it. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, but it is, a, yeah, is and was a public company. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that with us. Um, we'd like to just ask for a, uh, something of a personal reflection about your your habits or how you organize your life on the personal side. Uh, and, and anything you do with your daily routine that you think in some way has contributed to your professional side, your professional success. Anything come to mind? Some habit or routine that you have? Yeah, I think pe- people that know me would uh, would probably point to my creative use of post-its all over my desk, but that's not the thing I'm most proud of, to be honest. Um, no, I, I think one of the things that I always try to think about every day is um, doing the hard stuff first. Uh, and I think it it's one... Um, you're, you're a lot smarter and you think quicker in the morning. Most people do anyway, is in my opinion. And so if you, if you focus on the hard stuff first, uh, it, it, one gives you, gives me anyway, a great, 
sense of accomplishment early in the day and then uh, makes the rest of the day kind of go downhill <laughs> easier. So, yeah, I think that's a, a personal habit that, uh, that I, I try and um, think about every day. Hey, would you have a, a book you'd like to recommend? Um, you know, interestingly, I, I, uh, I'm more of a podcast person these days than a book. Uh, and, and I don't know that I've, I've got one in particular to recommend, but I, I think it's, it, it's a sign of the times, right? And I, I work for this great e-commerce business that's, you know, changing people's perception of, uh, of, of retail in the automotive space. Um, and at the same time, I think I'm, uh, you know, forward thinking in terms of ingesting uh, information that's both interesting and helpful to me. And I think the technology is brilliant, right? So it's very difficult to, to walk and read a book, um, but it's really easy to walk and listen to a podcast. So that's kind of my, my favorite media these days. And, you know, there's, there's just a host of things that you can, uh, you can find that are very, very focused uh, on particular interests or topics. So, excellent choice. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get any pushback here. So, thank you for sharing that. Um, and we are up to our final question, Dave. Thank you for answering. Uh, I threw a few extra questions your way, uh, but this is where we ask you to look forward for us and tell us about your priorities as a finance leader going forward now. After this IPO, we're still in this oddball environment. But what would you share with us as your your priorities over the next 12 months? Um, I, look, I think it's, you know, within my org, it is continuing to build the business. So as I mentioned, I've been, you know, blessed with uh, having the ability to be in a very strategic role. So with that, um, certainly, you know, building the business in terms of growth and profitability, those are the two pillars uh, of our financial strategy today. Um, but I think ultimately that leads to opportunities that I can provide for my org. And so I'm a huge fan of, you know, giving people uh, the opportunity to advance their career within the company. And so if we can strategically continue to build this business, um, especially on the pace that we've been going, uh, I feel like that, that'll create a lot of opportunity for the, for the people that have helped build the business. So. Um, you know, that's one of my, my personal goals over the next, you know, 12 and 24 months. Dave Jones, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun, Jack. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. 
Thank you for listening.